That Medic Podcast, your bi-weekly dose of education and inspiration in the healthcare field. Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Daniela, a student at Oxford University. And this is That Medic Podcast. Enjoy! In this episode, I have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Nagpal, the chair of the British Medical Association. We cover how the BMA works, current and future BMA projects, the importance of inclusive leadership, the post-pandemic role of digital healthcare, and advice for medical students. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we launch into the episode, I want to briefly tell you a bit about AMBOSS, who are kindly sponsoring the podcast. Created by a team of dedicated physicians from around the world, AMBOSS is an interactive library of over 20,000 medical topics interlinked with a question bank holding more than 5,500 clinical case-based questions. With all the necessary resources in one place, AMBOSS instantly delivers up-to-date medical knowledge to students, physicians, and faculty globally. AMBOSS has powerful learning and clinical tools combined into one platform, making studying a breeze and life on the wars easier. With the AMBOSS library and question bank side-by-side, students can look up terms instantly when solving questions. Students and physicians around the world use AMBOSS material to excel in their exams and on the wards. Sign up in minutes at amboss.com. Try AMBOSS risk-free with a trial today. Hi, welcome to the show, Dr. Nagpal. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We have a tradition of starting each podcast episode with the question, why medicine? And why did you choose to specialize as a GP? Thank you so much. I don't think it's true to say that I woke up one morning as a young person saying I want to become a doctor. But what I do know is that I've always been interested in science and scientific inquiry, trying to understand the basis in which human beings function, the basis in which nature uh, works, etc. But, but I think what's really been interesting for me is applying science to human beings, both in terms of the physical aspects of medicine, but also the behavioral and emotional aspects that make us as human beings. So that's why I got interested. And of course, medicine offers you all of that, the science, the art of medicine, the interrelationship between people, how it impacts on them, also things like research, etc. So it just seemed to be a, a discipline that attracted me both at its core, but also in terms of the breadth of opportunities it offered. Now, in terms of becoming a GP, when I was a medical student, wanted to become a hospital physician. It all changed in my fourth year at medical school when I attended my attachment for a GP practice in inner city London. I was, to be frank, totally struck in awe by the work of the GP trainer I was attached to. For him to see about 20 patients consecutively with a range of medical conditions, be it a a mother who'd just given birth to a child with asthma, to a patient who had a psychiatric disorder, to an older patient, to visiting someone at home who was housebound, drug misuse, I could go on. I was just bowled over at how a doctor could manage to keep up to date and provide care on such a range of medical problems. And of course, each problem was different by the next patient. And this was unlike anything I'd seen in hospital where I would, as a student, attend clinics like an eye clinic. I'd see the doctor dictate a letter to the GP immediately after. There was a pattern to it. Whereas here, it was quite overwhelming in one sense, but that was to the credit of what a good GP can do, which is to be able to deal with that diversity of problems. The other thing that I was really struck by was the trust that patients bestowed upon their GP. And of course, in hospitals, what I saw was doctors treating patients, but after their treatment, they left hospital 
or left a hospital clinic and that was it. Whereas this was a case where patients would in fact divulge some of their most inner secrets to their GP. Secrets that they may not even have divulged to their spouses because they trusted the GP. And that trust came also from this other element of general practice, which is the continuity of care and getting to know people, who they are, and treating the person, not the condition. I just remember, for example, accompanying the GP to a home visit, and we would visit dominantly housebound older people who couldn't leave home. Going to their houses and seeing on their mantelpieces pictures of them when they got married when they were younger, I just felt this is a privilege. And general practice encompasses the entirety of what being a doctor is, both in terms of treating the physical problems, the emotional issues, and treating the whole person. From that moment onwards, I gave up the idea of wanting to be a hospital doctor, and that has been my choice. I was so committed that the day after I finished my a GP training, I became a GP partner in a practice. And I've been at that practice now for 32 consecutive years. Uh, so general practice is my life. What an incredible story. It sounds like being a GP is so interesting and rewarding. Obviously, you've been involved in the BMA long term. What initially inspired you to join the BMA? For our listeners based outside of the UK, could you please explain what the BMA does? So the British Medical Association is both a professional body and a trade union. So I'll start with what it means by to be a trade union is that it is a, a union where doctors are given support in terms of the, the terms and conditions of their work and we negotiate pay for doctors. It's about making sure that the working conditions and their pay are fair to doctors. That means that we have to negotiate with the government because in the UK, doctors work predominantly in the National Health Service for a government-funded service. I know in other nations, many doctors will work for insurance companies or private companies, but in the UK, the vast majority of doctors are working for our state system, which is funded and run by the government. So we negotiate. The other side is we're a professional association, and we therefore represent the professional aspects of medicine. So we have, uh, to give an example, an ethics committee that produces work on the ethical aspects of medicine. Very recently, we did a big piece of work on physicians-assisted dying, genomics, we have a board of science that looks at all the scientific elements are involved in medicine, whether it's issues around public health approaches to reducing obesity, whether it's around policies for a cleaner environment, so we're involved in green issues, uh, whether it's the role of technology in the advancement and in artificial intelligence in medicine and so forth. And we've also got an international division in the BMA that is part of our work in looking at human rights across the world. So, for example, during COVID, there's been a lot of issues around vaccine equity we've been involved in. So the BMA is this professionalist association and a trade union. And I should add, the membership of the BMA starts from uh, being a medical student. We cover entirety of the medical profession from the moment you become a medical student right through becoming a doctor and every type of doctor, whether you're a GP, hospital doctor, public health doctor, a forensic doctor, medical legal doctor, you name it, we represent every type of doctor. And why did I get involved? Well, when I was a medical student, I was eligible to join the BMA at a very, very cheap rate. That's what we have. We have a very subsidized rate for medical students. And one of the perks is that you get a copy of the British Medical Journal. So for me, joining the BMA as a medical student was very much part of getting the BMJ, part of having access to learning. In those days, uh, there was no such thing as computers and the internet. So it was a the hard copy that attracted me. Just as I was qualifying as a GP, the government in the UK were putting in place some very major uh, reforms about introducing market forces in the health service and market models of improving performance. I objected to that. I felt that the strength of our national health service in the, in the UK is the fact it provides care on the principles of patient need, equity. I felt these market forces would damage the principles of the national health service. So I wanted to express my dissatisfaction. And so I attended a BMA conference. I said what I wanted to say on stage. And before I knew it, people said, well, gosh, we like 
like what you say, why don't you become an elected member onto the BMA's GPs committee at the time? So I then became a member of the BMA in terms of its political work. And that was back in 1990, I think 96. Uh, and thereafter, I just progressed in the British Medical Association, got higher positions until becoming four years ago, the chair of the BMA's UK Council, which is the most senior position in the BMA, in a way, sort of holding the ring for all the work that the BMA does for all its constituent doctors. That's how I got involved, it, by accident. It wasn't a career move. It was because I wanted to make a difference to the way in which the government was running our national health service. What are the main lessons you've learned during your time working for the BMA? The first lesson is that doctors are a broad church, and we should never assume that doctors are of one mind. Uh, I say that because, of course, I've just described that we represent all categories of doctors, and they will have different experiences. But even within a what we call a branch of practice or a discipline, so if I look at myself as a GP, even within my own constituency of general practice, Different GPs have different views, different perspectives. And the one thing I've learned is that everyone's voice counts. And when you're in an organization like the BMA, we have to make sure that we understand that breadth of experience, that breadth of thoughts, ideas, visions, and aspirations. I've certainly learned that having a desire to embrace that diversity of viewpoints is a good thing. And it makes us richer. It makes us more interesting. And it reflects the fact that life is diverse, as opposed to having black and white positions on issues. For example, even if I look at something contentious, like I mentioned how in the UK we have a National Health Service where no patient is charged to see a doctor. It's free at point of care, funded by taxation. There are some doctors who feel we should have a different system, a fee for service, for example. And so you can have really opposing views. But my position is that we need to allow everyone to feel comfortable to express their views and there should be respect for each other's views, even where you violently disagree. So I think that's one thing I've learned. The other thing I've learned is that people have a lot to contribute. And if people want to influence, like I did back when I was a junior doctor, that we should actually encourage people to be able to have a voice. And that means having systems, representative access to members who can then feel they have the right channels to make their voice known. So this could be in terms of local BMA committees and so forth. I've learned that when you are actually within a committee, so the BMA is made up of committees that represent their doctors of their constituency. So for example, we have a, a junior doctors committee, we have a GPs committee, we have a public health committee. What I feel within committees, and these are people who are politically active, it's really important for there to be inclusive leadership and to demonstrate that you value drawing upon people's strengths rather than identifying differences. And I think there are ways in which inclusive leadership can really make a team of doctors in an organization like the BMA really come out and be able to be their best. And I've also seen the opposite, where leadership has been more hierarchical, where I haven't seen the same successes. So I believe in inclusive and dispersed leadership. And I also believe I've learned that when you do that, actually, everyone's happier for it and more productive. So that would be my sort of lessons that I've learned in the roles that I've occupied in the British Medical Association. Could you please elaborate on the concept of inclusive leadership and your leadership approach? Very typically in the BMA, we, as I said, we have committees and the committee has a small team of officers. I've experienced throughout my, my decades in the BMA uh, what it feels like to be a backbencher and seeing a lot of power concentrated on a few who are the officers of a committee. What I did when I became chair of the UK Council is I wanted to reverse that because I felt that I had a lot to offer when I was a backbencher, but I wasn't given opportunity. So I put in place systems where I set up a group uh, where backbenchers could themselves have a voice and determine how they wanted our council sessions to run. I started involving more 
task and finish groups and groups where there was greater levels of involvement of backbenchers on the committee in pieces of work. So they weren't observers, but they were active contributors. I asked members to tell us what they thought were special interests or where they felt they had special expertise. And we put together a data set so that we can draw upon those people's strengths. More recently, I also did something else, which was to broaden input into the British Medical Association from grassroots doctors. Certainly, there have been issues around the experience of doctors from ethnic minorities in the UK. There's a lot of evidence, unfortunately, that doctors from ethnic minorities don't have an equal experience and the health service doesn't treat them equally and they are disadvantaged. So the BMA has been doing a lot of work at a national level in, in our committees on equality and diversity and representing ethnic minority doctors. But again, I felt it wouldn't be right for us to be at a central level in the headquarters of the British Medical Association trying to represent the realities of grassroots ethnic minority doctors. So instead, what I created about nine months ago were regional networks where every single ethnic minority BMA member can be part of regional local networks where they have a voice and they can express their experiences and they can say what they think needs to change when they can also express what they want the BMA to do to fight for their rights and interests. And so now we have an interconnected set of regional networks across the UK made up of everyday doctors who have a voice, they have advocacy, and their voice is fed into the national BMA. So it's about having a bottom-up agenda rather than a top-down agenda. So those are examples. And the other thing that I would want to elaborate, the value of dispersed leadership, that in fact, the more people you involve to have lead roles, the stronger I believe your own leadership is. You know, I think people may feel that they're giving up a sense of control or power. I would say it's the opposite, because the more you disperse that leadership, the more people will actually end up respecting and valuing the fact that they become a leader of enablement rather than a leader of narrowly trying to control everything. And I think that's what leadership is about. It's about enablement and actively trying to power people who have something to offer and allowing them to do so. Now let's take a quick break to listen to a short message from our sponsors. Amboss is a medical knowledge platform built on three fundamental elements. At the core, a comprehensive medical library helps students learn the facts and the nuances of medicine. Also central is the QBank. By using these tools, students unlock the third element, personalized analytics, which helps students make smart studying decisions. Three essential tools of learning all in one place. It's no surprise Amboss has become one of the most popular resources for students and schools worldwide. Ready to take a closer look? Sign up for a free trial today at amboss.com. It sounds like the BMA has made incredible progress under your leadership. What in your eyes is the BMA's biggest success? I think the biggest success for the BMA is defined by what it represents, which is representing the entirety of the medical profession, starting from being a medical student. If I look at some work we've done recently, I talk about quality, really, and I personally absolutely stand by the need for a medical association to ensure that there's equality of its workforce. So about a year ago, we know that there's bullying and harassment that goes on in medical establishments. We know that it can affect doctors' well-being. We know it can affect career progression. But actually, we started at medical school and we showed that bullying and harassment is rife in medical schools in terms of medical students. And again, about four times the level of bullying and harassment amongst ethnic minority 
medical students. And we created a charter against bullying and harassment in medical schools. And it's been now implemented in the vast majority of medical schools in the UK. Now, we've, of course, done very similar work in terms of qualified doctors. Uh, and we've also implemented a lot of changes there. But I think what this shows is how we represent the entirety starting from the moment you get into medicine. So that's one major success. But the other is the fact that we represent the entirety of the workforce and the entirety of the way different disciplines that doctors work in means that we are unique in offering solutions that are not through one perspective, but through a whole system. So if I look at the work of the BMA during the COVID pandemic, we have been really outspoken uh, as a medical association in challenging the government and really calling out for the way we believe the government should respond to the pandemic. It's a good example of how the BMA, by representing the entirety of the profession, has been able to have a voice that has brought people together. So, for example, if you look at our earliest campaigns on PPE or test and trace, well, it was our public health committee that gave us a lot of input on how a public health response should be to a viral pandemic. We then looked at the risk to doctors in terms of protecting them, especially those maybe high risk. We had to bring in our occupational health committee to bring us that bit of information. We then looked at the impact on hospital doctors and redeployment and how they may work excessive hours and what impact that would have on them. So we brought in our junior doctors committee and our hospital consultants committee to implement that. Then we had issues around general practice because it was very difficult when you're in small GP practices in the early stages. We didn't have proper infection control measures, etc. So the GPs committee contributed. And then there was a whole ethical issue at the time when COVID first broke out where we didn't have the capacity in the NHS and we were worried about what would it mean for doctors to have to perhaps say no to some patients and yes to others if there just wasn't capacity in, in our hospitals and intensive care units. Our BMA Ethics Committee provided ethical guidance on how to ethically work in a system where there isn't capacity. So I think that gives you a picture that its bigger success is that BMA sees the bigger picture and it brings together the entirety of the medical profession, both from the scientific aspect right through to the delivery of care and the terms and conditions doctors work in. COVID-19 pandemic just crystallized the strength of the BMA. I think the other thing it does, but we have a very clear demarcation between what we call primary care, or that's care in the community, that's family practice, GPs, and care in hospitals. The way the NHS is funded is to keep the two separate. But one of the things that I've felt very strongly that the BMA can do that others can't is we bridge that gap. And we actually have argued and we've put forward uh, ideas on how uh, the government should break down that boundary because actually we're all doctors trying to do the same thing in a team, but the system in the UK has actually separated the two. And one of the most proudest piece of work was a project called Caring Supportive Collaborative that I led when I became chair of council. And it's a vision of what a health service should look like. A health service that is caring, that means it, it provides a culture of support and care for the doctors who work within it. A culture that recognizes the pressures people are under is a no-blame culture, but a learning culture where there's lack of fear but feeling that the system is there to bring out the best in you. And when things go wrong, a system that actually learns rather than attacks and targets. So that's a caring bit. Supportive in the way that I mentioned, supporting well-being of doctors, recognizing that by investing in well-being, doctors will actually be able to be more productive. And the third being collaborative, which is, as I said earlier, promoting a health service where doctors actually work with and for each other rather than in silos, which can be so damaging for the output of care. That project was a thought leadership project. It was 
developed again as i say bottom down i did about 20 roadshows in local areas so that we got grassroots opinions and that's been presented to the government as our vision of how they should be developing a national health service in the uk so i see that as a big success drawing upon the components that i described earlier would you say the caring supportive collaborative project encapsulates your five-year vision for the bma what other goals do you have for the bma so you're absolutely right, uh, Daniela. I mean, the caring, supportive, collaborative vision is a major vision which will require a real system change in the way healthcare is organised, delivered. That should be a five-year vision for the BMA uh, so that in five years' time, I hope doctors can go into work uh, and medical students can go into medical school feeling they're in an environment that cares for them and also one that thinks about their welfare to bring out the best in them but also an arrangement where the culture around when things go wrong is one that, where they feel supported and there's inbuilt learning, quality improvement as part of that. And as I said earlier, where doctors feel they're part of one infrastructure and one team. And we've got very specific proposals around how that can happen, which is going to require, in some cases, legislative change because we are a state-run service uh, and that will mean changing the way hospitals and GP practices may be funded and operate. So there will need to be some legislative changes and there need to be some very major cultural changes that would need to address inequalities and the way in which doctors experience their work. So I see that as a major five-year project for the BMA. And I should mention that we are part of the World Medical Association. I'm a council member in the World Medical Association, so I'm very aware of how other medical associations behave. And one of the things that I really believe should happen in every medical association, in every country, is thought leadership. Because if you leave it to politicians or non-medical management in an insurance company to come up with their vision, invariably not the right vision. And what we need to do, instead of reacting to other people's ideas, is to shape ideas. And who better to shape ideas than doctors themselves so they then, in a way, can determine their own futures. And it's a message I've given to our medical students as well. If you are a medical student involved in the BMA, you have an opportunity to shape the sort of healthcare system that you'll be part of when you become a doctor. So it's about real thought leadership rather than reactive leadership. And I think the third thing in the next five years I'd like to see in the BMA is just developing on what I said earlier, the systems of dispersed leadership, but inclusivity and representing common voice. Because what I've also noticed in many medical associations or medical bodies is that you have representatives who almost become professional elected leaders. And those professional elected leaders, and I will count myself in that, are not necessarily living the lives of the people we represent because we are, after all, doing another job in representing others. So I would like to see for the BMA far greater uh, systems of hearing the voices of everyday doctors, everyday medical students, those that actually don't have the time for or don't have the inclination to be involved in political representations, those that are actually perhaps just beavering away, being doctors. They're the ones we need to hear from. And I believe that we have incredible opportunity now, opportunity that we didn't have when I was a medical student or a young doctor, which is the digital era. It's now much easier to sometimes just ask people what they think about something with digital enabled technology on a phone. Just ask them two or three questions about what they think about X or Y. And you'll get that feedback really quickly and just make it really simple, uh, something that may only take a minute. But it's so easy to do now. And that's what I'd like to see the BMA becoming, a, an organization organization that really understands the perspective of the everyday working doctor and of course medical students. You touched on the digital being very important. The COVID pandemic has had a huge impact on the NHS and on all of our lives. I think we can say that it has accelerated the shift to digital healthcare with many consultations taking place online or over the phone instead of in person. How do you see the role of digital technologies in healthcare in the future? 
As you've mentioned, it's very useful for the BMA to use the digital to receive feedback from doctors and medical students. Do you think remote working introduced during the pandemic will fundamentally change the way doctors work? Or do you think it will no longer be as prevalent post-pandemic? Essentially, do you think we will ever return to our pre-pandemic ways? In the UK, the politics around this has become a really binary discussion on whether it's uh, use of technology or traditional face-to-face. In fact, at the World Medical Association recently, we we were debating that, and I argued very strongly that that's a wrong question. You need to think of uh, caring for patients in the best possible way for the specific condition or the specific circumstance. In many cases, uh, digital technology will not just be the right thing for for the consultation, but patients will prefer it and it will actually improve access for many who may not otherwise have been able to find time to attend their hospital or GP clinic. In other cases, it's absolutely the wrong thing to do when you might have a patient who wants to discuss a more private or sensitive matter confidentially with the doctor face-to-face or someone who, of course, needs to see a doctor because they need to be physically examined. I'm very much in favor of not being prescriptive about this, but bracing the fact that we will have a multitude of ways in which patients can access healthcare and be provided healthcare. Some of it will be face-to-face, some of it will be by telephone, some of it will be video consultations, some of it will be online. And the online can be for simple administrative issues where they may just want the result of a test and they can just be informed. Uh, Whereas in the past, they would be wasting their own time having to come to a doctor to make an appointment just to be told something. The other area of technology which uh, has potential is the role of uh, telemedicine. As a GP, if I look at the way in which we managed patients during COVID with pulse oximetry, we were never using pulse oximetry in the way we are now, where patients have the tools to be able to self-assess their oxygen levels. We never did that before, but now it is the way you manage people. And in fact, it's a much better way for the patient rather than having to say, I'm going to go to my GP practice or to find out what my oxygen levels, they they know in real time. Blood pressure monitoring. There was a time before the pandemic when it was routine that patients came to a GP practice just to find out what their blood pressure was. Well, now they can measure it at home. It's probably more accurate because you don't have white coat hypertension. It's real time and it gives you sequential readings. I think technology definitely has a part to play. And as I was saying earlier, You need to be, when you're in the BMA, in my view, an association that hears what your membership wants. So one of the things we did during the pandemic is ask doctors lots of questions through these digital surveys. And what they told us is actually they do not want to go back to the old normal. In fact, about eight in 10 want to make greater use of remote and technology in general in a way that they had not been doing before. And they want also to work in more flexible ways. I think the answer to your question is, I don't think we should be going back to the old days. I think we should embrace technology appropriately whilst recognizing there is still a fundamental place for the traditional ways in which we also see patients. So it's not either or, it's and and. Switching gears a bit, could you please share what a typical day or week in your life looks like and how you balance working full time for the BMA with practicing as a GP? To be honest, my day doesn't begin or end. That's what it feels like. Because one of the problems about the digital era is that there's no boundaries to the fact that I'm getting emails and messages. It feels uh, nonstop. But in terms of actual scheduled commitments, I will typically in the morning, 8 to 8.30, have a meeting. Nowadays, because we've still got high levels of COVID in the UK, we're still doing most of our work uh, virtually. So I'll have typically a Microsoft Teams meeting. So a lot of those meetings are around internal matters within the British Medical Association. As chair of council, I will attend every day there's a a committee of a certain specialty it could be the public health committee or it could be the medical managers committee or the gps committee i will attend that as the chair of council so that i can understand the issues 
of every type of doctor or the medical students committee. So that's another part of my typical day. I will be attending one of those committees. I will also then have meetings with external stakeholders. Many of those are politicians. So for example, yesterday I had a meeting with a senior health minister from the UK government about the introduction of mandatory COVID vaccinations, which was announced in the UK. So that's a large part of my life. The other really large part of my life is media. So yesterday, when the announcement was made for the government introducing mandatory vaccinations, I did an interview on Sky News and BBC News on the BMA's response to that. And of course, when we respond to that, I'm drawing upon information, feedback from the experts from the BMA, such as our public health doctors, on what does mandatory vaccinations mean. Day yesterday was media work, internal meetings, meeting with the government. One meeting seems to occur after the other. And sometimes I might have to be mid-meeting and say goodbye while I'm next on live TV and then go back to the meeting. That's the sort of typical core day from about eight onwards to about six in the evening. But then unfortunately, the day often extends beyond that because I'll be catching up on emails. And then I also have scheduled phone calls for people I can't find time to speak to during the day. The other thing that I do still do is be a GP. I think it's really vital, well, for me at least, that I carry on experiencing the health service in a way in which allows me to connect with the doctors I'm representing. I do two evening sessions in general practice. They're actually evening night sessions because I work for the BMA full time and I do the BMA work on a Monday. Then Monday evening, I do my evening surgery in my practice. And I do the same on a Friday where I am being a general practitioner, seeing patients in the normal sense, using the myriad of ways in which to consult online, telephone, video, face-to-face. And I experience all the pressures of working very hard doing that. So that's my week. And every day is very different. And I have to say that I consider this post a privilege because it's given me exposure and understanding for really the incredible work, dedication and commitment of the medical profession, its contribution to the health service and the nation for that matter when you look at COVID. But the other privilege is being able to influence government and government policy, certainly uh, managed in my view to be able to make some changes as a result of our direct dialogue with government. So that, in a nutshell, the sort of day and week that I have. That sounds very intense. I'm sure it's very rewarding. I think we're nearly ready to wrap up, but before we go, could you please share what three pieces of advice you would like to give medical students, particularly medical students interested in leadership roles generally or in working for the BMA? As a medical student, you will have views, you will have thoughts, you will have something you feel you want to offer, please believe in yourself. That's the first thing. Do not think I'm not cut out for this. I think just be yourself and make your feelings known. Just like with me, I never thought I would be involved in the BMA. I just expressed what I felt was the right thing. And before I knew it, I got drawn in into the British Medical Association. But there'll be many openings. So please don't keep it to yourself. Share what you feel, what you think, or if you want to campaign for something, make that known. And so that would be the first. Uh, The second is if you have conviction, go with conviction. I see so many people who attenuate that conviction. They sort of feel that they're not confident or they feel that they may be too outspoken. Provided you express it in a polite and courteous way, even if you think that your conviction is in a minority of one, be true to yourself and express it. Thirdly, I would say that what I said earlier about valuing inclusivity where your leadership gains from the way in which you enable others 
to actually achieve their best working alongside yourself. And I think that's how teams are built up. That's something I wish I'd known very early on in my, not just medical career, but even as a medical student. So those are sort of messages I would give and also just avail of the fact that there are people out to support you and help you and never feel that you can't go to someone who you admire or someone who's done some great work. Just go up to them and say, can I have a chat with you? In fact, to be honest, the way in which I was invited to do this podcast, you know, worked exactly in that way. I was approached to say, will you do this podcast. So I think remember that if you are a medical student or a junior doctor, just don't feel hesitant, feel confident enough to go to others who you think you want to know more about something or you leadership you admire and just reach out. You'll be surprised that people are out there to talk to you and support you and help you and guide you. Just don't feel hesitant. That's very valuable advice. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. We would really appreciate it if you subscribed, gave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For more content and resources from That Medic Network, please follow us on our social media. All the links are in the podcast description below. Thank you and have a good week.